Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From across Louisiana, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti, Stephanie Regal, and Christian Maiden. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's Freeman School of Business Professor of Finance. Stephanie Regal is editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report. Christian Maida is publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Louisiana style. Hi, and welcome to Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. As Louisiana reopens and we continue to navigate the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, Christian, Peter, and I are taking a weekly statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. And it's not all doom and gloom out there. There are some businesses who are thriving in this current downturn. Today, we're gonna find out about two of them. Jennifer John's local company, Pang Wangle, is doing gangbusters. Pang Wangle makes an eco-friendly line of women's clothing that comes with a special superpower. It's bug resistant. For some reason, which we're going to find out, the quarantine has given Pang Wangle a national profile. While everyone else has been holed up working from home or not working at all, Meg Arsenault has found herself run off her feet at her bike shop. Bicycles have become a hot item during the pandemic, and we're going to find out why. Before we get to that, Christian, let's kick off our weekly roundup of what's going on in Louisiana business in Acadiana. Uh, We've seen protests in all the uh, major cities around the country. Some of them have led to uh, changes in the way people do business. Anything over there to point to? I mean, we've seen a, a good bit of, of what, you know, we've seen in other places, meaning, you know, people have, have, have started to sort of um, circulate lists of black owned businesses and try to find ways to be supportive. Uh, certainly, we've had uh, rallies, several rallies here um, that, that I think were pretty big considering the size of the market. Uh, and then we've also seen some businesses, you know, straight up trying to 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 lend a hand. I mean, there's a coffee shop downtown uh, that's been raising money for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So, We've seen some step up, right? Seeing people starting to become part of a larger movement, the sorts of things we've seen elsewhere in the country. So, Stephanie, uh, the the other thing that seems to be happening, of course, is you know we we have had uh, you know major protests around the country. We've got coronavirus, and we still have a legislative session. This one is special, um, but I, I understand that you know. The, the battle here is not so much between the governor and the legislature in this particular issue. You actually have a case where it seems like the governor is kind of letting the Republican-led legislation get a win. Run? You mean run amok over him? Not really, but he is he is straddling, you know, a, a very fine line and trying to balance a whole lot of interests um, with, a, as you point out, a Republican-led legislature that has a tremendous amount of power. There was an interesting story over the weekend that the advocate wrote about the Senate president and the 
and the House of Representatives Speaker, you know, really teaming up in sort of an unprecedented show of force. Um, they have pretty much a veto-proof majority. So even though the governor traditionally in Louisiana constitutionally has a lot of power, they are certainly exercising theirs. And, and where you really saw it this week was with a bill that passed that the governor is going to let move forward um, that's going to give the legislature control over the way that federal CARES Act relief money comes to the state and specifically carves out a large chunk of it to the tune of $300 million for small businesses that were affected by the COVID-19 shutdown. And, and you may remember when the CARES Act passed in late March, Congress allocated a big chunk of it for state and local governments because of all the expenses they've had to incur. And Governor John Bell Edwards and Jay Darden worked out a plan to split that money, 55 going to the state, 45% going to local governments around the parish. And uh, the legislature came back with its own plan and said, no, no, we get to um, control the appropriation there. And um, local governments, you know, they really waste a lot of money and a lot of them have a lot of pension debt because they've been so poor at managing their finances over the years. And the small businesses need this money more than the local governments do. So uh, now there is an argument to be made that local governments aren't going to need as much money as maybe was allocated. And we certainly know that small businesses do. But it was an interesting show of force, one of many that have been playing out at the Capitol in Baton Rouge. So it's really been interesting to watch, as you point out, Kristen, along with everything else going on in the state. But, you know, those small businesses, you feel for them, too. And um, the legislature wasn't just being power hungry. I mean, it was genuinely wanting to help some constituents. And Peter, I know in New Orleans, I mean, for some of these small businesses, it's already too late, isn't it? It, it is, Stephanie. And one of the interesting things is we're focusing on the short-term impacts on business and you know how long they can hang in there until things get, get better. But there's some legacies from coronavirus that are uh, don't get the press, but they're very, very interesting and very, very important. For instance, uh, this idea that more and more of us are going to work from home, uh, we talk about who's, who benefits from that and who loses, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Like there was a good story this week about um, a couple of uh, sandwich lunch kind of places in the CBD, the Central Business District. You remember when CBD stood for a part of town and uh, uh, that, that don't have, um, they, they've really folded up for forever because they, they just won't be as many office workers that need to uh, need to eat down there. And a lot of them have moved out of, out of there and um, this is this is kind of forever stuff. Of course, one of the things about uh, downtown areas, so many offices had been converted to apartments and condominiums, and that wasn't their market either. So um, there's people that are making short-term decisions. There's others that just realize that a lot of this stuff has changed forever. Peter, it is it is really interesting. And um, I mean, I was talking to a business owner in Baton Rouge yesterday because we see the same thing in downtown Baton Rouge, you know, as well. And and a lot of the office. Um, a lot of the office markets is going to affect all those ancillary businesses that serve, you know, those hubs. I was talking to a guy who's been downtown 25 years. He said, you know what? We don't need this much office space. We're going to move when my lease is up. I said, oh, that's a great story. Can I write about it? And he said, no, no, no. My landlord doesn't know yet. <laughs> but, but this is going on and it's going to be a trickle down effect for a long time. Yeah, we, uh, we think uh, this is just really the beginning. And, uh, and you know, Maybe some of these changes were going to take place. Interestingly, uh, Stephanie, that I think before all this, what you and I probably were talking about is is the move back into the city. And uh, and I think what's happened is that's probably still still moving forward, but it's going to be a different kind of city. More people live in downtown, less people work in downtown. 
interesting times. You're listening to Out to Lunch Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Christian Mader in Lafayette, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. Before Hurricane Katrina blew me and my family to Baton Rouge, I was a journalist and news reporter at WWL-TV in New Orleans. One of my colleagues there was fellow journalist Jennifer Johns, and Jennifer joins us now. Jen, it's great to see you again. Welcome to Out to Lunch Louisiana. Great to see you. I love the show. Thank you. Well, I'm still a journalist, but you are smart. You got out when you could. (laughs) You are now the founder and CEO of a company and one with an intriguing name, no less, Peng Wengel. So the story goes that while you were out in the field reporting, you were so sick of getting bitten up by mosquitoes and other bugs that you created a line of bug-resistant clothing for women. Scarves, wraps, pants, hats, and bags that are not only stylish and lightweight for life outdoors in the South, but they're also impregnated with a safe and long-lasting bug repellent. Things apparently have been going pretty well since you launched the company at the end of 2017, and then along came the pandemic, COVID-19. But instead of decimating your business like so many others, it somehow got you coverage in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, New York Lifestyle Magazine, and on a coveted BuzzFeed site. Is all this pandemic publicity a result of your superior media skills honed during your years at Channel 4 or something else? No, I will say no. Um, I So we had one product that we launched with that we primarily sold on Amazon. And so over the last couple of years, I've been developing new products with really fabulous fabrics. It takes a long time, takes a lot of money. So our, our new products, the wraps and scarves came out in February. So we're sitting on all this inventory. And so we decided to go to a trade show. Lucky for me, the Travel Goods Association happened to be in New Orleans on March 4th and 5th. So we got ourselves a little pod at the trade show. And um, that's where the Los Angeles Times reporter was and the Washington Post reporter. So that was very, and they were really excited about what we were doing and they could touch and feel the products. I'm, I'm always a little bit surprised that people haven't really heard of Insect Shield before because it has been around for about 10, 15 years, but it's primarily in sort of safari clothes or backwoods camping clothes or you know military clothes. So um, a lot of people hadn't heard of it. So they felt like they were making this big discovery. So that was great. But then we signed up with, we picked up about 10 um, retail shops that were going to carry our clothes and then they all shut down. So they said, oh, you know what? Never mind. Don't fulfill that order. So we're like, yikes, we have all this inventory. But because of those two articles right away, we got a lot of sales on our website. And so I hired a publicist, a publicity firm out of Arizona. Actually, I interviewed several firms and then we got, they got us into Buzzfeed and Texas Lifestyles Magazine and Southern Voting. And so we've been getting a lot of, um, a lot of press and the BuzzFeed article, actually, we were number three on the 35 most awesome Mother's Day gifts that are 100% quarantine friendly. So even though we had positioned ourselves as a travel brand, because I figured people who are looking for bug repellent apparel, they, they don't want to get dengue fever while they're in Jamaica. They don't want to get malaria while they're in Africa, you know, yellow fever. I figured they'd be the savviest and they'd be looking for this product. But then when nobody was traveling, you know, again, I'm like, oh, so once they put it 100% quarantine friendly and it's a perfect gift idea because it's one size fits all. All of a sudden it's, you know, just like, oh, great. Get your mom who's sitting on her porch getting eaten by mosquitoes. Go ahead and get her a wrap. And so we sold out of two colors. Um, and then Texas Lifestyles Magazine came out with an article that said, here's the perfect gift to give a loved one to help them self-care this summer. So it's a self-care gift. It's a, you know, quarantine friendly gift. So we were very, um, 
really, really, I mean, I don't know if it's luck, serendipity. It was weird, but it was great. Jennifer, like our old colleague, the late Larry Sherling used to say, chance favors a prepared mind. But, yes. but I'm just so curious how you, how you made this leap from journalism, which prepares you to do nothing um, but annoy all of humanity, <laughs> to, to being such a savvy business person. Where did you learn how to start a business and grow a successful business? Well, I left Channel 4. I actually went on maternity leave and then just never went back. So, but I, I, I really, I'm just, I wasn't very good at, you know, sitting still. So I started, you know, teaching at Loyola and Tulane media classes. And I started a video production company for about 15 years. And we did, you know, we did a lot of like sort of technical videos for companies explaining things. We, and we did some brand films, a little, a couple of commercials. And I made two documentary films while I was doing that. Really making a documentary by the time you raise the money and you hire the crew and you write the script and you do everything like that, it's essentially like starting a small business. The only big difference is that I made zero money. <laughs> they were great. It was fun. Makes doesn't make you any money. And so I think I've just been doing the production company for a long time and was just really looking to do something new. Um, and I'm just really into being outdoors. And so I was looking for a problem that I could solve. And I think, you know, getting it alive by bugs is a problem that we all live with. And um, so I just, I went with that. Jennifer, this is Peter. I, I've got to admit there are a lot of mosquitoes that are very angry at you, but, but, but keep it up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. The, you know, you did something that a lot of people think about doing, but they don't. You said, I've kind of accomplished all I want from uh, broadcast journalism and I want to move on to something else. So we always, uh, you've always had a lot of energy. Have you? always had a lot of other business ideas. Like when you're interviewing me about the economy, were you secretly thinking about bug-free optimist pants? Yes, yes I, I have. Actually, after Katrina, I had started the video production company and then Katrina hit. And of course, you know, as you know, everything went crazy. And so at that time, I came up with a business model. I was going to sell um, eco-friendly baby gifts online. So, and it was interesting because I did this whole business model. I got bids for a website. And it was, at the time, it was going to be between twenty dollars and $30,000 for me to just set up the website with all the back-end, you know, encrypted um, software that you need to make it safe for people to put in their credit card information. So there was a big barrier to entry for that kind of business even then. But at the same time, after Katrina, I got this huge contract with the Convention and Visitors Bureau to do a bunch of videos. So my production company really took off and I kind of tabled that idea. And now when I was thinking about what I was going to do, I'm like, baby gifts, <laughs> I'm over that. So I decided to do um, something else. So the thing that's really burning in my mind is if this stuff is like this magical mosquito repellent, this is Southern Louisiana, a place where you cannot go, you know, two feet without getting, you know, absolutely devoured by mosquitoes. Why don't we make everything out of insect shield. I mean, what is it about this material that like we can't just plug it in to, you know, my jeans, to this check shirt that I'm wearing? I mean, why isn't it everywhere? Um, I mean, it might be. That's why I'm trying to race to get, you know, the head start that I already have. But it, it's, um, I think a lot of people haven't heard of it. They don't know that it exists. Um, you could send your jeans right now. You could treat them yourself at home. Like people who, when they send their kids to summer camp and they're worried about Lyme disease, they'll buy the little packs of the permethrin, that's the active ingredient, and they'll treat their kids' clothes, but it ends up washing out. So if you, so Insect Shield, they started for the, um, they were developed for the U.S. military because every year um, they would have like eight to 10 cases of Lyme disease for their recruits at West Point. And so after they developed, so they had insect shield develop this technology. So it's their proprietary formula. They're the way that they bind it to the fabric so it doesn't wash out for 70 washes. So, and they and they will um, now license to different businesses. So it's out there, you just, you know, it's I'm trying to take it a little bit more mainstream 
And again, I want to I want to grow as fast as I can to stay at the head of the pack because you know we've been bootstrapping so far and we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of growth quickly. So we want to keep that momentum. Jennifer, what are your plans? Um, you know, besides the the rapid growth, I mean, are you hoping to to cash out and sell the company in a couple of years? Are you still operating this out of your house? I mean, how how is this all going? I I am. I I have a laundry room slash office slash guest room that is my uh, place where I keep my things. But I also have a big storage unit, and so um, yes, very much bootstrapping right now. I'm kind of over that, and I really would like to, you know, we're looking into moving into another space. Um, I think with growth, we have a couple of reps, you know, a Canadian rep, apparently they have vicious big mosquitoes in Canada, who knew, I did not know that. And, you know, we have a rep in California who's trying to get us in the national park um, gift shops, that kind of thing. So we want to go there. We're also in Amazon Australia now, so we're going overseas, we're going to see how that works out. And I think for me, because I'm not a journalist anymore, but I, I am a storyteller. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I do. So I think that, you know, we have a blog, we make videos. I'm, I'm, we're going to launch a podcast pretty soon talking about outdoor adventure, that kind of thing. And so in a perfect world, um, I would focus on that aspect of it. You know, once the business gets to a certain point and then, um, and then, you know, have other people running the, you know, do the accounting and all that, that stuff that I really don't care that much about. Um, but yeah, of course, we, eventually we, we could sell. Absolutely. I mean, there's, you got to always have an exit strategy. Jennifer, you make uh, all of this in the U.S. We've had so many people on the show that uh, design in the U.S., but they end up manufacturing it somewhere else. How have you been able to do it? Well, I think we set out to do it in the U.S. because, um, for well, there's really three reasons. So number one, you have a smaller carbon footprint. So sustainability is a huge part of the brand. So if we're primarily selling in the U.S., we don't need it to be shipped halfway across the world. You know, um, So that's one thing. The other thing is I think um, we want to, of course, create American jobs or support American jobs. The other thing is that it kind of makes you more nimble. So the minimum order quantities are smaller. I can get you know, a small sample batch of yardage and have it in, in Los Angeles is where we have it made in our um, our facilities, by the way, they, you know, they pay a living wage with health benefits and pay, you know, paid time off, that kind of thing. So, and we can make, you know, 300 items of a product and see, just see if, does it sell? Whereas you go overseas and you're going to have much larger minimum order um, quantity requirements. So when you're looking ahead at, at the folks that are um, going to compete, right? When you're saying you're trying to get ahead of this sort of thing, I mean, but, but, you know, then we're also talking, it sounds like your, your costs might be kind of a little bit more expensive. I mean, how do you stay ahead of that if you're not buying in the large batches, you know, scale is going to come to play once you kind of have more competitors in the market, right? Right. Well, we, we ordered, you know, about a little over 2000 units um, in February and, and we've almost sold out. So we, so when I reordered, I um, reordered without the little fees of the small batch production. So I'm trying, I'm already getting my, my margins up a little bit that way, but also we don't have the overhead of, you know, a bricks and mortar store. Um, as you know, they're struggling a lot of them. Um, and you know, that can, that can be 50, 60% of your overall operating budget is running a store. And so I think that we can stay lean and mean and still offer you know good prices without um, sacrificing our profit margins. Jennifer John is founder and CEO of Peng Wangle. Jen, thank you so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch Louisiana. Thank you. This was fun. You're listening to Out to Lunch Louisiana with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, and I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. Over the course of the last few months of the pandemic, myself and other reporters have been asking what seems like an endless list of questions for which there are no known answers. How long will this economic downturn last? What happens when government assistance runs out? 
What is the future of education, of tourism, of entertainment, public spaces? The list goes on and on. But in the middle of all this uncertainty, there is one economic question we're going to get a definite answer to right now. And that question is, why, during a pandemic and its historic economic fallout, are bicycle sales through the roof? To answer that question, we're not turning to an economist or financial pundit. We're turning to Meg Arsenault, owner of Hub City Cycles in Lafayette. Meg, welcome to Out to Lunch. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, last time you were here was back in 2017, and since then, a lot has changed, especially over the last few months. And while the rest of the country has been struggling to stay in business, you've been struggling to keep up with business. So what's going on with bikes? Well, um, literally, we moved to a new location downtown about a block away from our old location one week prior to COVID. And so it was a lot of uncertainty when we moved, right? I was super nervous. And literally the next day, I had people lined up outside of my door waiting to get their bike fixed. And then everyone bought all the bikes that I had left in my shop. And then I bought 50 bikes. Then all those were gone in a week. And then I bought another 50. And then all those were gone. And in this last three months, I have sold more bikes than I do in a year. So it's just been incredible. Um, and then the, now we're out of bikes until probably mid-July. So we're just pre-ordering bikes right now. There are no bikes to be had. All the bike companies are out of bicycles. So you kind of dodged, I think, unintentionally my next question, which is like, it's summertime, right? <laughs> which, which would make you think, okay, well, this is the time that people may be less inclined to go biking. At least that's the conventional wisdom. I was going to ask, will your bike sales slow down? And it seems like that is a moot question because you don't have any bikes to sell anyone. Um, it's, it's really wild because we are selling, we're still selling bikes every day. And actually Christian, our busiest time of the year is summertime. Um, kids are out of school. Parents want to get bikes because, and the kids need new bikes. So they're outgrowing the last one. So summertime is definitely busy fall, um, spring, summer, fall, and then slows down in January, February, of course. But we've been really blessed. A lot of, a lot of our sales are attributed to, um, repairs, um, we are right now, we, we just went from 18 days to about two weeks. Now we've kind of caught up with bicycle repair, if that's even catching up. Um, and we, we really had a formula from the get-go. We realized that if we started doing small repairs every day from 11 to 1230, that we could actually get more people through the door, right? And sort of keep up with it. And that has really helped us. A lot of people have been very stressed. A lot of bicycle shops are just, and we just really embraced it. I hired two new people. Um, and we just started rolling out. We just got got ahead of the, the curve, I guess, you know, and just didn't let it stress us out. Just like looked at it as, wow, look at us. This is the busiest we've ever been. Meaning and like gaining so many new customers as well. So we just hope that this continues after the COVID. But I don't think COVID's going anywhere. So I say bicycles are here to stay. And it's certainly been the same in Baton Rouge. I know the bike shops here have been slammed in the same sort of way. What's the story on, on the, on the lack of supply? I mean, how long until the manufacturers are, are able to catch up and get you the inventory that, that you need? Well, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but, um, bicycles are kind of like automobiles. Everything's been made in China since the late seventies, everything kind of moved from America to overseas. So they actually have made bikes. We've had several crates of bikes. I hold about a thousand bikes at a time come in but they're only allocating so many bikes per shop. And so um, fortunately we've been able to, you know, keep selling bikes, but um, it's like all the new bikes for 2021 will be out in August and then we won't have a shortage again. They'll just keep producing. 
So we're very fortunate with that, but it's a month of lull for sure that I've been dreading. I knew this time would come. And um, I'm, it's really hard to convince some Cajuns why they don't have bikes. And then why, like, it's just, it's, it's a, we've, never, we've never been in this, in this place before. So it's all new to us, as well as trying to explain to our customer, hey, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to pre-order a bike. No, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you to sit on. But if you don't pre-order this bike, you won't have a bike till next year. How do you tell someone that? How do you sell that to somebody? So um, we've been very, we just, you know, we, we asked people to come in. We've actually got to spend more time with people um, and explain to them the process that we have to go through and how wild it is. And, and just grateful for everyone's patience throughout this whole ordeal. Hey, this is uh, Peter in New Orleans. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your shop is uh, one of the reasons it's so popular is you have a huge uh, you run the gamut in terms of pricing and uh, and such. When I go to bike shops, I t they tend to be for um, the lack of another term, bike geeks. You know, really high end people that just all they want to talk about. Uh, how did you make that decision? Do you think eventually those people kind of move up the chain? Yes, um, great question. Um, so my business plan was to be a neighborhood bike shop. Um, I didn't want to. I mean, I definitely can sell high end bikes, but. I can sell more bikes at a you know more affordable uh, price range, right? I'm only going to sell so many two thousand dollar bikes, but I can sell. Shoot, I sold fifty two hundred fifty dollar bikes. So I mean, it's just supply and demand. Just figuring out whatever works for you. Now, building bikes is hard because there is you know bikes don't just come built, right? They come in a box, so you have to assemble them. And a lot of people don't understand is it takes a skilled. I mean, I have I have heart like people with. 10, 15 years experience building these bikes. And it still takes them probably around an hour to build these bikes. And so you also have to take into that into consideration into your profit, you know, your loss. And so selling low end bikes doesn't, I don't have a lot of profit there. Right. So, um, but yeah, we are a neighborhood bike shop. We also sell used bikes. Um, I'm out there, I'm, I'm searching for bikes every day at different places, you know, like uh, Craigslist and whatnot or Facebook market, trying to find used bikes. I could bring it in, fix them up. So. So let me ask you a question about riding because I, I am a cyclist and I have been for years. And so when this happened, you know, I was, I was right there jumping on my bike. I ride it almost every day. And, and one of the articles that a Dutch cycling magazine posted in March that made the rounds on social media talked about the distance you have to be safely when riding with a group to avoid getting COVID. And it was something like basically a half a mile. I mean, it, so all sorts of people, well, the guys I ride with didn't want to ride in a group anymore. Other people, maybe not so much, but I mean, do, is there any best practices? Is it safe, you know, during this pandemic to ride in a group? It doesn't seem to be bothering your customers apparently, but do you have any wisdom on that? Sure. I mean, stay with people you've been hanging out with throughout the COVID, your family, you know? Um, I know for us, we don't, we just see the same people. I mean, I'm, I'm in a shop that I go through probably seeing 30, 40 people a day. I wear a mask. I ask that my customers wear a mask. Is it hard? Yes. Not everyone wants to do it, but um, as long as you're outside, I think that you're safer, but get with your family, ride with them. Um, I mean, we have like a little group that we ride with, but we definitely stay distances when we stop. We're not like sitting next to one another. I mean, you can still practice social distancing on a bicycle. It's actually the easiest way. 
I believe. Meg, I mean, lastly, you kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, you look, you've hired a couple more people, you've, you've sustained more volume that you, you feel like it doesn't, you know, you said COVID seems like it's kind of here to stay, but we're all sort of hoping that it isn't. So, I mean, do you think that the things that are making people want to, you know, bike more during the pandemic are, are, are going to stick around? Is that something you're counting on? Well, I, I hope that people learn from this whole thing. The silver lining is that everyone needs to slow down. They need to put down, you know, their phones or whatever. And there's, people right next to you to hang out with. And I think a lot of people discovered that. I don't know about for y'all, but I would drive around. I was picking up bicycles too in neighborhoods to, to repair. And I was driving around. I would see families outside. I haven't seen that. Any, I mean, since I was young, like people biking, people hanging out outside, like playing basketball with their kids. So yes, I hope that this does stick around. I hope that we can all, you know, be outside more, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. I mean, I hope COVID is gone as well. I mean, but we all know that, it's hard. I don't see a lot of people with masks on and we know how it's spread. Right. So let's see. Yeah. We, we all hope that the pandemic goes away, but maybe that we stay connected. Um, Meg, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Meg Arsenault is the owner of Hub City Cycles in Lafayette. Thanks for being on Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me, guys. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. We edited these conversations to fit into the time slot on your local NPR station. You can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, out to lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. At some point, we're going to go back to hosting out to lunch around the lunch table. Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge is open. You can eat at the restaurant where they have 50% occupancy and outdoor dining or get pickup. In New Orleans, Commander's Palace is closed, but you can have a range of ready-to-cook items shipped from Commander's Kitchen to yours anywhere nationwide. Information is at goldbelly.com. Our Lafayette Out to Lunch restaurant, The French Press, is doing curbside takeout. You can pick up their regular menu items or a family dinner, and you can get delivery through Waiter or Grubhub. Out to Lunch Louisiana is a production of INO Broadcasting. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merle. Photos from this show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. I'm Christian Mater in Lafayette. And I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.